Okay, in preparation for this election of, of deacons, I have four things uh, that I wish to say this morning to hopefully help our congregation, to help each of us be prepared for what we're doing because we do believe what we're doing is very important. We're not flippant about this. Uh, we have uh, those nominated for office who've just gone through 12 weeks of training during the Sunday school hour. Um, they are taking a written exam and then they will have an oral exam with the session. We take this seriously because we believe that the health and the well-being and the future of a church really depends on having healthy officers. So be aware of that. But in preparation for that day of election that you might feel you have your arms around what we're doing, I thought it might be helpful to begin with this. Well, what is the meaning of deacon? That's a little bit of a familiar word, but maybe unfamiliar to many. Two things about the word deacon in the Bible, probably more than two. Um, the word appears 29 times, 29 times in the New Testament. The word diakonos, which means servant. That's what the word means. To be a, a deacon is to be a servant. It also means, similarly, to be a minister. Not in the way that you might think in our American culture of a minister, but to be one who tends to, to minister to. So he is a servant who ministers. That's what a deacon is. And so there's a real sense, and the majority of the use of the 29 times the word is used in the New Testament, it's a generic sense of a servant. And that's why Matt Smithhurst in his little booklet on deacons says this, if you are a genuine Christian, you are a deacon. I want you think about that for a moment. If you're a genuine Christian, you are a deacon, and that is with a lowercase d. You are a servant of Christ Jesus who ministers through your life to others in Jesus' name and for His sake. But the office of deacon rightly understood and deployed, is an irreplaceable gift of Christ to His church. They are model servants who excel in being attentive and responsive to tangible needs in the life and ministry of the church. They assist the elders through their service of caring for needs, preserving unity, mobilizing ministry, and more. Okay, so there's a distinction. There's a sense in which all of us are deacons, lowercase d. We are servants of the king and his kingdom. Amen. But there is an office of deacon, particular people who are charged to see a task of service through. Responsibility has to fall somewhere. God does all things decently and in good order. And we try to do the same, though we mess it up. But He's given us deacons to make sure that there, there are those who are tasked to lead the charge of service in representation of the church. So a, the deacon, in the proper sense, capital D, deacon, is a distinct office of ministry. Setting persons apart for official service and ministry to assist the elders beyond the ordinary ministry of the word and prayer and extending into tangible mercies. 
tangible mercy ministry. And many of you are like, well, we need a whole lot more of that. How about less sermon huh, and more projects, right? We need both. God's people need both. And the elders are called to tend to the ministry of the word and prayer, and deacons are our doers. And they don't do it for us alone. Oftentimes, they lead us in the charge of doing things. More of that in a minute. Secondly, the origin of the office of deacon. So where did this come from? The Old Testament doesn't talk about this office so specifically as we learn in the New Testament. And the New Testament actually doesn't talk about it very much. It talks about it less than the office of elder for sure. But in Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, we are given what most believe is the introduction to this office of the diaconate, this office of deacons. This, this is the section of Scripture that has been called the proto-deacons, the first deacons. So Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Give your attention to that, and we'll consider it briefly on the subject of deacons. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, that is the Hebrew Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve disciples gathered all the disciples together and said it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables to serve. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility, that is of serving and waiting tables, over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Here we believe we have the proto-deacons, the first deacons, the introduction of this office of ministry. And what we're told in verse 1 there is that these were to be faithful servants of God who were to meet a particular kind of need in ministry. And the context here is in context of widows. It's a context of those who were vulnerable in that culture, just like they're vulnerable in our culture. And these widows who couldn't care for themselves, who couldn't provide for themselves, well, there was a mercy ministry to distribute bread to them, to make sure that everyone had something to eat. But as you heard, there was attention. There was a controversy. Some thought that some widows were being neglected because of other widows. 
Now, I want you to picture that. The church is young. The church is brand new. There's amazing growth. Things are happening quickly and suddenly. And it never takes long for controversy to break out, does it? For conflict between people. And that's exactly what is happening here. In fact, there's even a racial tone to it because it's the Hebrews and the Greeks and the sense of some being preferred over others. So you have a people who are vulnerable, you have a real physical need of food, and then you have a little sprinkling of potential racism on top of it. That's the culture. And those apostles, those who were charged with the ministry of preaching about this Jesus and His resurrection of the dead, they're trying to gather people and minister the Word and see the church take off. How are they going to do two things, two monumental things at once? How are we going to do the ministry of the Word and go from place to place when we got a real physical need? If we go tend to that, we can't do this But God's called us to do this. And the Lord says through His servants, you need deacons. You need faithful men who you can trust. And they'll go take care of those needs on your behalf. You see, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? And so we have those proto-deacons, those first deacons in the demonstration of how to think about ministry and how to do ministry. In verse 3, it shows that they're carefully chosen. They did not just say, okay, are there seven volunteers? Is anybody willing to do this? And oftentimes, that's how we function in our culture and, and even in the church. But that, I want you to see that's not what they did. They were carefully chosen by the assembly. Carefully chosen by men and, we believe, women. So depending on the version that you're looking at, the NIV says brothers and sisters. Uh, the, The ESV will say brothers and only say brothers. But if you click on the note, it says and sisters. So that can seem vague and ambiguous. What it means is this. The language there used seems to indicate that he's speaking to all the gathered people, what we would call the church. And they're saying, you all, y'all, choose seven men. Not seven volunteers, not seven anybody, but they need to be seven men, he says, and they need to be full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, what benefit is there to including everyone in that call of selection and choice? Well, my experience tells me oftentimes the women will know things that the men don't when seeking a character check on a man, right? So in this context, it's no, dis- no different than our own. Imagine um, electing seven deacons and it not coming from the whole And then all the men go home and they say, well, such and such is a deacon. And they're like, you're kidding me. He whistled at me at the well last week in an inappropriate manner. Right? So I really think this is part of it. It's the wisdom of the whole, but to select faithful men. And again, I'll say like I did last week, in our culture, (gasps) that's scandalous. Cancel GPC. You have to cancel scripture to cancel that. It's what we believe. We believe that to be a man is to be faithful, to be a leader, to be a provider, to be a protector 
those are good things. And in this context, the Lord looks to men. He provides men to lead His church. But as you'll see, the women are not left out. They are not left out. They are not left out. If you quote me on anything this week, let it be that. Okay, as we move on, that's the origin of the office. And these men are to be trustworthy and responsible, proven by the test of time. Okay, these aren't new converts. These aren't men who just uh, passed a, a quick exam. These men have proven themselves to be sincere. As much as they could evaluate them in the time that they had, these are trustworthy men, which is to say, you can trust them around the vulnerable population of widows. In a world that will take advantage of widows then and now, these are trustworthy men. You can send them to care for the widows. We trust them. They'll be faithful. It's very significant, very important. My mom is a new widow uh, for about three and a half years. And as soon as you fill out that paperwork and, and send in the financial information, it is amazing to see how many emails and how, how much postal mail bombards a widow seeking giving to charitable causes, seeking to get a piece of the resources, oftentimes using deception. And some of you are living through this, either as widows or as children of widows, and you've got to intercept that. You need to say, Mom, you don't need to give to this. This isn't legitimate. But it's a world now and then that will prey on the vulnerable. Okay, That's what they were seeking to protect then. It's what we want to protect now in the character of the men elected to office. We want trustworthy men, responsible men. Okay, then thirdly, the purpose of the ministry of deacons. And this is important. The purpose of deacons in history, outside of Acts chapter 6, it has really been a various and sundry looking job description. You might say that there have been seasons, and perhaps we're even in one now, where the office of deacon and the service of deacon has drifted in its purpose. It's drifted in its purpose. What do I mean by that? One book on deacons that I looked into this week said that uh, a pastor did an experiment. He asked multiple people, what do the deacons do in your church? And he got every answer that probably we would give. Well, the deacons open up and lock up the building. The, eacon, the deacons cut the lights off. The deacons clean the gutters. The deacons make sure the grass is cut. Yes, that is true. The deacons tend to the facility of ministry on our behalf, the church's behalf, because somebody's got to do it. You don't want Pastor Paul doing that all week, right? I'll burn things down and break things and do things wrong. You want capable people to do these things. Plus, the pastor's supposed to be preparing to bring the word to bear in the lives of God's people, and that won't get done if we're chasing every little detail of the church. So the deacons exist for that very reason. Uh, serious but comedic point. Um, don't ask me if you can cut down trees on the property. Don't ask me. I, can't, I don't have the authority to answer that question. I've been asked that question. Uh, don't even ask me if you can move furniture around in the building. I don't have that authority. I'm just the pastor. I just preach here. Okay? 
Don't ask me if the church would like to give money to a certain cause. I don't have oversight of that. That's not my responsibility. We have deacons that do all of those kinds of things. And it's very helpful to the overall ministry of the church. It's very helpful. They are a gift and a blessing of God to His church. So it's the, the, the role and use of deacons is very practical in that way. And it's very helpful. But I, I want to emphasize this morning that the role of the deacon is not just those things. It is a spiritual ministry that ministers through physical needs that people have. Tangible needs. Practical needs that people have. And it was John Calvin. When I say that, some of you are going to be like, I don't care what John Calvin says. Well, hold on, wait a minute. It was John Calvin who sought to recover the biblical vision and purpose of deacons. That it is an office of mercy. That mercy ministry is the heart of a deacon. As a matter of fact, Tim Keller wrote about that. And some of you right now are saying, I don't like Tim Keller. Don't talk about Tim Keller. Stop. He underscored what John Calvin said. That it, at its root is a mercy ministry that explores tangible means of service to those who need it. And so Calvin's concern was that it had just become administrative and duty-oriented at the cost of being agents of mercy. And that's how I want you to think about deacons for a moment. That they are the instruments, they are the agents of mercy. How can we address real needs? How can we do it as the church and informed by the gospel, the good news of the gospel for sinners? That's what the deacon ultimately is, as Calvin and Keller would agree. They're agents of mercy. They're doers of mercy. And they don't just do it for us. They lead us in doing it ourselves. You could put it this way. This is how I think of it. What we're talking about is being offensive in ministry. Not offensive, not rude in ministry, but going on offense, doing things with intentionality for the good of the church as the church. Let me give you an example. Um, I was reminded as I thought through this this week of a story from 15 years ago where my friend Bill May, who has helped us in the widow's ministry, if you recognize that name, he told me the story of how in another church, another PCA church, the diaconate, largely led by Bill, I think, thought, how can we go on offense in Honeyapath? That's where the church was. And the diaconate said, well, we get a little money from the presbytery, because this was a church plant, actually. They said, let's take that little bit of money once or twice a year. That's all we can afford. But the deacons are going to do this, and we're going to let anybody else who wants to help, help. We're going to announce to the community that we're going to have a free oil change for widows, or for single moms, or for anybody like that who feels overwhelmed and behind. Church will pay for it. Church will pay for it strategically. But we want to be known in the community as those who have widows, single moms, those with special pressures and needs. We're on offense. We're intentional. Now, how does that strike you? 
Is it offensive in a good way? Offense? I hope it does. That's a, that's a ministry of mercy and a reaching out. And how much easier is it to invite people to your church once you've led with that first? Once you've loved people first? That's intentional ministry. That's thinking, how can we use the resources God has given us and minister to where there are needs? Now, you could fill in the blank with any number of needs. That was just one that they chose. But we could sit down, our diaconate could sit down and scratch out strategies, intentional ways to love greater Greenwood in ways that maybe we don't already do because we already do some. It's the deacons who have their eye on that category for us and who welcome us into it with them. They don't just do it for us, but they create ways to do strategic, intentional ministries of service. Likewise, just as the elders, by the way, are supposed to be intentional in their creating avenues of ministry of the word and of prayer. Not that they just do by themselves, but that the congregation can do together. So I want you to think of that. Of all the ministries that we do, they ought to be intentional about ministries of service that our deacons help keep our attention on and ministry of the word and prayer that every one of us needs and that it's easy to neglect. And in this church, like most, we have programs for our youth, which I want you to see as ministries of Word and prayer. Ministries of the teenagers, which ultimately are avenues for service and ministry of the word and prayer. Anything that we do really falls into those kinds of categories, whether it's our men's fellowship, um, whatever we do, our elders, our deacons are trying to hook arms with the flock to learn how to be the church. Matter of fact, even this afternoon, after we enjoy the Lord's Supper together, um, there's, there are two that are going to take the Lord's Supper to some shut-ins who can't be with us. They're going to take the ministry of the Word, the prayer, and the sacrament to those who can't be with us. That's what elders do. So I want you to think, even of your own life, your own service, this is who we are. This is what it means to be the church. But not just anybody... Though everybody is a deacon with a lowercase d, there is an office of the deacon. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, we're given the qualifications for what kind of men are supposed to be chosen. And if you were here last week, you're going to hear a lot of similarity. I'm going to do this quickly, but you're going to hear a lot of similarity to the office of elder. There's one key difference, and I'll go ahead and tell you what it is. The elder is to be able or apt to teach. It doesn't say that about the deacon. There's some people designated to oversee the teaching and to do the teaching. What we need are the doers, the distributors of bread to the widows, as it says in Acts 6. And those are the deacons. It's okay if they're not apt to teach, but they got to be able to do stuff. Two different offices, one is not better than the other, and you see that the character of both men, the faith of both men is the same. So let's consider those, I think it's nine qualifications that are listed here. They are to be faithful men, and I've already said that and suggested that, that he is uniquely identifying men as those who fill the office. 
That is not just what I think the Bible believes. That's what our church believes. It's what our denomination believes. If that's an issue for you, I would love to talk about that. There's further evidence of that, by the way, in the passage we read from Acts chapter 6 in verse 5. Remember, all were called upon to help choose seven. Men and women called on to choose seven. But it needed to be seven men. And if we weren't sure if that really was male, they then named the seven and all the names are male. So it's very clear the earliest example of these proto-deacons and then what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, it all is pointing in a direction and an expectation of the men of the church. It goes on and says that they are to be worthy of respect. They're respectable men. It says that they're to be sincere. They're not fake. They're not phony. They're not one way at church and another way at home or at work or at the gym. They're sincere in their faith and in their character. Then, like the elder, it says they're not to overindulge in wine. It doesn't say that they don't enjoy wine, but it does say they don't overindulge. They're not controlled. They're not dominated by strong drink. Then it says they're not pursuers of dishonest gain. They're not like this world. They're not out to to hustle a buck and get something however they can. They don't pursue dishonest gain. They're upright men. Then it says they are to keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. And I think we can infer from that it's not that they don't know the deep truths. They do know the deep truths. And they're able to hold them with a clear conscience. But they may not necessarily be gifted to teach and do public communication in that way. Then it says they're to be tested to see if there is any testimony against them. And perhaps that's the conversation of the women with the men back home about the man's behavior. He's tested. What is he really like? You tell me what he's like during the week. And that's part of why we have this written exam and this oral exam for our men. That is our effort to test them, to make sure they're not just nodding their head at answers, but they can really express and articulate their faith. Then it says, he too, like the elder, is to be faithful to his wife. He is a one-woman man. He is not like the world in which we live. And then lastly, again, like the elder, it says that he managed his children and his household well. Things are not in rebellion at home. Things are in good and decent order, but not perfect order. So you see the imagery is the same and the description is the same. These are men of faith, but they're flawed men. They're imperfect men, but they are sincere in their faith. They're not corrupt, and they won't be easily corrupted. They're true to the core about who they believe they are and who the Lord Jesus is. And there are your men. There it is, right there. There's your character, and and there it is. So should we close in prayer? Not so fast. There's verse 11. A point of controversy for some. I don't think it's that controversial, but let's look at it quickly. Now about those women. Verse 11. It says, Likewise, in the same way, their wives or the women, and it's the same word, it can be interpreted either way, 
their wives or the women who serve in the church should be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, temperate and trustworthy in everything. And then if you continue to read beyond that, he then says, he goes now back to deacons. And so to get to the bottom line for the sake of time, what we believe we have here is that women are included in ministry. And we know that from our own experience. When you get a faithful man, typically you get his wife too. She's not far from him and she is a co-laborer in his ministry. And you think about your own experience, even within this church. It's just true. Now, it's not a rule, but it just tends to be true. If you get Paul, you probably get Marie. If you get Archie, you probably get Glenda. If you get Dave Seeley, you probably get Ann. If you get Sam Burnett, you probably get Kim Burnett. If you get Randy Randall, you get Angie Randall. And on and on and on. That's how it tends to work. But the wives are to meet that standard of faithfulness in their conduct, in their speech, in their character. Because all of us, as church members, we're representing the ministry of Christ to the world. And so that's what I think we have here. That there will be women who serve in the church and they are co-laborers just like our wick is, our women in the church. Co-laborers, not in an office of ministry, but who's doing the most ministry around here? Tangibly, it can be our wick. When there's a need for a meal, when there's a newborn baby, our wick lead the charge. Do you want Pastor Paul leading that? No, you don't. But our women are co-laborers. They are faithful servants in so many details. That's just one example. The BCO talks about this, by the way. That's our book of church order in the PCA. Let me read this quickly and make one application and we're almost done. It says this, It is often expedient that the session, the elders of a church, should select and appoint godly men and women of the congregation to assist the deacons in caring for the sick, the widows, the orphans, the prisoners, and others who may be in distress or need. These assistants to the deacons are not officers of the church and as such are not subjects to ordination. But I would add, but boy are we thankful for them and for their fruitful ministry. Amen? Some of you have been the the recipients of that, maybe even recently. And we are so thankful. This category of deacon assistance, by the way, um, it's not limited to our women. I would remind you that it potentially includes our children. And maybe it should more intentionally include our children. As a matter of fact, I would tell you we have children in our church who are obviously serving as deacon assistants. And I won't name them to embarrass them. But you can think from your own eyes and perspective, I've seen children serving our church to make sure we have audio and website and podcasts and all that. And some of you adults would be like, don't give that to me. I couldn't do it. But we have children who are serving. They're serving the body. And in that way, they're they're deacon assistants. But remember, everybody's a deacon in the lowercase d sense. But there are some who are called 
as capital D deacons in the office and there to help us keep our eye on the ball, to be the church, to have ministries of mercy and service to our own church and to greater Greenwood beyond our church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, what we prayed in our pastoral prayer. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Altogether, this is how the Lord cares for His flock. This is how He is our Good Shepherd. This is how He serves and ministers to us and even through us as His church. He provides the gifts of strength and of compassion to serve and minister His tangible mercy to His people. He provides servants with eyes to see needs, with hearts and hands that are willing and compassionate to serve those needs, and who are generously gifted to be the church at work. That's our vision. That's our understanding of deacons. We're all called to be servants of Christ Jesus. But we're thankful for the gift of particular men who meet those qualifications, who lead us in understanding, as we heard earlier, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. I'll close with this. There is one true elder, one ultimate elder of the church. And it's our older brother Jesus, the Scriptures say. And there's one true and ultimate deacon of the church. One servant of the church. And that's the Lord Jesus. He was the one who came not to be served, to be deaconed, but to serve, to deacon His church, His people, for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's pray. And as we pray, we're preparing to come to the one who has served us with His body and with His blood to forgive His church. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your compassion and Your mercy. You're having the pursuit of a sinful people to deal with their sins once and for all and to lay down Your life on the cross, but to take it back up again. And so, Lord, it is in Your name and by Your Spirit that we sing as the church, that we feast at the table as Your church, And so, Lord, would you remind us, all this talk of service and of deacons, Lord, would you remind us that you are the one who has served us perfectly well. And we ask this, we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.